previously on Beta. So, do you want the good news or the bad news? Yes! She told the crowd to shut up before she even sings. Let's just go ahead and hit play here and give this a listen. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, Van Lathan joins us to talk about his powerful memoir, Fat, Crazy, and Tired. He shares some raw truths on race, celebrity, mental health, and grief. I respect Brett Favre. I, I respect what he did. I respect his ability to conquer grief and go in there. But I wonder now if I ever had the chance to talk to him if that was his way of grieving. Also, author Ben Wardle pays tribute to Mark Hollis, the mysterious mastermind behind the British new wave band Talk Talk. He saw his voice as another instrument. So in his head, it was like the John Coltrane Love Supreme lineup with a keyboard, a bass, drums, and a lead instrumentalist, i.e. him, his voice. But first. Oh, whoa, who are you? I'm Julie from Four Months in the Future. Actually? Are you here to tell me what's gonna happen? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because of the, the butterfly effect, I can only really give you um, some loose details, but we'll go through the basics, yeah. Okay. You are gonna wanna pull all your investments. What? Yeah, just, yeah, good, get everything out of the stock market. Ugh, oh. Get it all out. Oh, it's a recession. You know what? Put a little money in Zoom. Isn't that a conferencing app? Yes, trust me. That's my fellow Canadian, actor, writer, and comedian, Julie Nolke, performing in her extremely popular YouTube video, explaining the pandemic to my past self. And describing it as extremely popular is an understatement. That video has received more than 21 million views. By the time the show is over, we'll probably be, be up to 22 million. Julie plays both her current self and her past self in the video. I think it's fair to say that the future looks very bright for Julie's future self. She joined us from her Toronto home to tell us why she was reluctant to post the video in the first place. I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> I'm obviously not a great judge of my own work. My husband and I had that kind of ongoing joke through our house for a, a couple weeks at the time. And I was like, oh, I mean, this is a video. But of course, the joke was over for me because... We had said everything we wanted to say in our house. Um, but I guess it wasn't over for everybody else. I guess it was new and, and relatable. Yeah, obviously it was, it, was, it was very relatable. So it sounds to me, based on what you just told us, that you ha have a very loud inner critic. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think that I always want to push myself and challenge my own work. And if I feel like something is a little safe, uh, like that video I felt at the time, then I'm I'm definitely insecure and self-conscious about it for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of touched on it there, but I wanted to ask you a bit more about the origin story for this video. You mentioned it just a moment ago, but can you kind of flesh out how uh, yeah, you came up with the idea? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, if you can recall, let me take you back in time. March of 2020 <laughs> was a very, very strange vibe, if you will. Pardon my use of the mm -hmm. word vibe, but I need it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it. There were so many unknowns. We had we had no idea what this thing was. We just knew that people were getting really, really sick. It was like slowly infecting the globe. And people were behaving in really, really strange ways. I mean, if you remember, like toilet paper was flying off the shelves. While we're being proactive here, actually, if you could just do a Costco run real quick. 
was gonna say the alarm hassle. Costco. Do you have any hobbies? You know, just something to something to keep you busy. Um, I no, not really. You should get a dog. I want a dog. You know, I want a dog. I just they're 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 a lot of work, and you've got to walk. You got to go outside with them twice a day. Right. The walks are gonna be clutch. Right, but I mean, I have to leave them because I have so much travel coming up. <laughs> It was just such a weird thing that collectively, globally, we were all sharing. I, I can't think of a time in my life where it's like the entire world was on the same page. And so, you know, we had this ongoing joke in my house of like, God, can you imagine like I had trips planned, like I had work trip planned. I, I thought my year was going to look like this. I never expected that it would feel like the apocalypse. And so that's kind of the birth of the video was just this idea of, wow, little did we know how, how foolish and naive, sweet summer child, you had no idea what was coming your way. And then, uh, yeah, and then we turned that into a video. You've made five sequels to explaining the pandemic to my past self. Can you talk about how the storyline develops over the the six episodes without revealing any spoilers? <laughs> well, it's been out for a few years. I feel like I can mm -hmm. reveal spoilers, but yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, originally I didn't anticipate that there were going to be other iterations of the video. I had no intention, but of course, stuff started getting crazier and crazier. And how could I not go back to? that format, you know, and I think people really wanted it. Everything's the same. What? It's the same. It's all the same as from from the beginning. That's not possible. It is. Wait, what 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 happened with the vaccine? New variants. Uh people still not getting them. Uh countries still don't have access to them and the booster coming a little bit too late. I feel like this is very predictable. And yet here we are. Yeah, season 3, I'll be honest, it's not been as good as season 1 and 2. But yeah, as as more things came to light, whether it was, you know, the horror that happened to George Floyd or, you know, the storming of the Capitol, it, all these things uh, kind of led me to going back to that device and, and re-analyzing it. Yeah, which is something, as you say, that was something we were doing. There would be a demand for it because the, the first one was just blew up and went viral. And also mm -hmm. it was something that went on for a couple of years. So it made total sense to do that. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the summer of 2021, you auditioned for SNL and you've posted a video of the characters that you performed. It is hilarious, really. Oh, thank and, you. Oh, thank you, for, thank you for creating it and coming up with those great characters and great impressions. We especially love your impressions of Winona Ryder and Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag. How did you come up with those two impressions? Oh my gosh. Well, I really appreciate you saying that because I've never considered myself an impressionist. I, oh. um, I mean, the audition, the audition is such a privilege to get, and I put a lot of work into it. I only had two weeks to prepare. And so I had made this video to send into SNL. And then, you know, a couple months later, I, I just wanted to post it because so much work went into it. You can either go one of two ways, north or south. One is going to take you longer. I absolutely love the office. It sort of makes me laugh. Um, I'm Phoebe Walbridge, and I am auditioning for the role of Jim. There's kind of a mandate for what you prepare. You need original characters, topical characters, lots of, lots of accents. Show as much as you can in five minutes and lots of impressions. And impressions aren't really my forte, so I went with 
characters that that I feel like I know really well. I feel like they're easy to kind of isolate their isms. Like Winona Ryder, I some I look a little bit like her. She's got these like big doe eyes and kind of a tight mouth, and I was able to kind of replicate that. And then Phoebe Waller-Bridge is just has a hilarious accent to me, like the way she speaks and shakes her head and then looks into camera. I just found those ones kind of easy to isolate and uh, and put into the audition. Mm, the audition, I've got to start using that. That's very the good. The audition, uh, yeah, the audition. But uh, with all due respect, you are an impressionist, in my humble opinion. You you were Thank so you. chameleonic in that in that in the video, and you were not hired for SNL though. What what was Lauren Michaels thinking? I don't think he oh was my thinking. Gosh. I don't think he was thinking. No, yeah. I, got a, I got a really, really <laughs> wonderful complimentary email back because I asked. I was like, anything I can do differently for next year? And they just said, nope, just send in another one. They they loved what I had, but I think, uh, I think they just had probably a lot of uh, submissions of very talented people. And of course, they like, they want a lot of diversity on the roster and they want people from, you know, totally different backgrounds and whatnot. And I think I just kind of was was similar to what they already had which is totally fair. It's it's important to get diverse voices in there. Yeah, that's true. That that's good that you have such a good attitude about it. Uh, do you have a video besides the pandemic videos? Do you have a video that you've posted on YouTube that you are most proud of? Oh, that's a great question. The ones that I'm most proud of usually are ones that are not very special. It's usually ones where, you know, I, I I had a lot of writer's block or I was totally burnt out and I managed to push through and create something. There's one called um, The World's Worst Foley Artist. Uh, I am known in the industry as a, a foley purist because I do not use the main, uh, the big uh, studio or the many tools to make the sound, to make the foley. I uh, do one tool in my toolbox. And that is my mouse. Crunch. Crunch. Flap, 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 I was tired of making stuff for YouTube, and so I wanted to really push myself. And I said, well, whatever I do, it's going to be with a French accent because I want to get better at this French accent. And the whole thing just about is improv. And I, I was very insecure and very self-conscious. And I, I, I just kind of pat myself on the back because I was brave enough to make it. Halfway through, had a bit of a meltdown because I was like, this is absolute crap and nobody's going to watch it and everyone's going to hate me for it. Um, but but I made it and posted it and people really responded to it and liked it. That, that one in particular I'm proud of because of what was going on behind the scenes. Mm, yeah, that makes total sense. Thanks for sharing that with us. you got to turn down the volume on your inner critic. It's oh, holding no. you back. Oh, I know, but it's like how how could you not? Like the inner critic is responsible for making me better. Yes, that's you true. know I can't I can't be blowing smoke up my butt the whole time. I'm no, gonna get no. too big for my britches. Yeah, yeah, we don't want that. Yeah, and it, it causes you that having an inner critic means that you don't settle for for something sure. that's it's not certainly up to your a balance. Standards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Our fellow Canadian Bruce McCullough of the Kids in the Hall hired you to act in the CBC Television sketch comedy series Tall Boys in 2019. What did Bruce think of your YouTube videos? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you bring him up because, um, well, when he hired me, he didn't know about YouTube at all. And, really? and you can and you can ask him. He he actually said to me, "You're going to be a star." 
And I was mm. like, I love, I, we're already best friends. And mm. so we, we worked together on tall boys. And then somebody says, did you hire her because of her YouTube channel? And he said, what YouTube channel? And he goes and watches it. Sure enough, about a year later, he messages me and says, we have to make a show together. And I said, mm-hmm. is this a joke? Is this for real, Bruce? He was like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're currently in the process of developing a show. We've been working on it for the last year and we're about to go into pitching and it's really good. And I'm so excited. And I hope people, I hope networks are interested in the way that we are because a lot of blood, sweat and tears went into it, but I'm, I'm really optimistic. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Hope that yeah. happens. Yeah, most definitely. Can you tell us anything about it, like in terms of genre? Is it going to be like a situation comedy, a sketch comedy series? I can or? certainly tell you about genre. I can't tell you like details about characters. Oh, yeah, not, of course not. But okay. um, it is a, it is a dark comedy. It's a plot-driven dark comedy, not a sketch show. I really, both he and I wanted to make something that, um, you know, was had authentic civilian characters who were flawed, who felt things, but also, you know, in a very, very comedic way. Both he and I have made a lot of sketch and we wanted something that, you know, was a little more true to life. And that's kind of the path we went down, but it is very funny. Mm. Well, it has to be if both of you are involved. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're excited. Yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you for sharing that with us. Bruce has described your approach to comedy as ferocious. What do you think he means by that? I think he's referring to, I'm a bit of a workhorse. I have a very diligent schedule and I'm a firm believer that while you can wait for artistic inspiration to hit you, you're also responsible for putting yourself in situations where you are uh, more susceptible for artistic inspiration. So I'm very diligent about a schedule. I'm very diligent about writing. And uh, it's almost mechanical in a way. And that in that way, I'm able to create weekly sketches that are new and original and funny with, with uh, unique characters instead of kind of just waiting for the inspiration to hit, I think is what he's mm. referring to. Very well said. Yeah, that's that's very well said, and I can totally see that. That makes total sense. I understand that you're a big Edgar Wright fan, and we are too. We had him on the show a while back to talk Whoa. about his Barks documentary. Has his work influenced your comedy writing? I mean, Edgar Wright is an absolute genius. I, I mm-hmm. aspire to do what he does. I love his way of genre bending, and that's ultimately the type of comedy that I see myself making. He's so great at balancing quippy, dry humor with slapstick and physical humor, but also creating characters that we really, really deeply care about. Mm -hmm. And in terms of longer form shows, content, movies, that's what I ultimately see myself making. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned genre bending, and yeah, Mm -hmm. he invented the rom-zom-com, the romantic zombie (laughs) comedy with Shaun of the Dead. So, yeah, I I can see why that would appeal to you. The rom-zom-com. I've never heard that. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? Oh, okay. No. Yeah. But you're so right, yeah. And then what would you call Hot Fuzz? Like the buddy cop? Yeah, cop, buddy cop. There's not a catchy way of doing it. I mean, they can't do a cool rhyme like we did with rom They did with rom-zom-com, buddy cop. Uh, action, that, action comedy. Yeah, something. We'll come up with it as soon as we end the interview. You, you or I, most likely you will come up with it. Yeah, deal. Uh, 
I think that's how it'll work, yeah. So what is next for Julie Nolke besides the dark comedy with uh, Bruce McCullough that we hope is going to happen and being on the, I guess it would be the 49th season or would it be the 50th season of SNL? Um, oh yes, you know. yes. Oh, I what? and I am auditioning this year. I'm already. Well, I would my hope tape. so. Yes, yeah. I am. I and all new characters, baby. Not none, none oh, of the old right. ones are. Com- yeah. Okay. Yeah. Looking looking forward to that. Great. <laughs> so yeah, that's going to keep you busy. You have a lot going on, don't you? Yeah, it's all fun yeah. stuff, though. It's all oh, yeah. silly. I have the best job yeah. in the world. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. I th- I would say you do. Julie Nolke, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations on all, all of your success, and we're looking forward to everything that comes next. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Julie Nolke is a Canadian comedian, actor, and writer. You can watch her videos on our website, wpr.org slash beta. Like nobody had a therapist that I knew when I was growing up. So there's no one for me to call and get the advice of how to protect myself and how to protect my brain. Coming up, podcast host Van Lathan joins us to talk about his memoir, Fat, Crazy, and Tired. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Van Lathan is a host of many podcasts, including Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay, The Red Pill, and the Ringerverse. His energetic gift of the gab makes him a natural for the medium. He also used to work for the tabloid site TMZ, where he had a bit of a dust-up with Kanye West. Van talks about that incident and other raw truths in his memoir, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. It's an intimate and inspiring book in which Van writes about his lifelong struggles with being overweight and dealing with anxiety and depression. Van joined us from his home in LA and we talked about his book and his belief that being fat in America is sometimes harder than being black. As a black man, there are places where I go in the world and people make space for me. If you're fat, then there's no place where people actually want to make space for you. They want you to be smaller so that you take up less less space. Um, and you're constantly told wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that the space that you're taking up, you don't have any right to it and you should be smaller. So in that respect, and I'm not in any way discounting or um, minimizing sometimes how hard it is to be a black American, but I'm saying in that way, it just feels like there's no quarter for you sometimes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about... Uh your, your mother's cooking of Southern food and what you describe as the taste blanket. Can you tell us a bit about that? So in Louisiana, food is a big part of our culture. Uh, a lot of places in the South, particularly Louisiana, where food is amongst the things that we are most proud of. You know, like our state has an amazing culture, mm-hmm. amazing people, but you know, we're not going to be proud of any of those numbers. We're not going to talk about the the GDP of the state. We're not going to talk about any of that. We're going to talk about how we can cook. So we soothe ourselves with that. So for me, after a time, I started to connect food with emotion. I started to use food as a mechanism to help me cope, to reward myself, and to calm myself down as uh, almost. And that's kind of what the taste blanket is. It's like you've had a bad day. You can't control 
how you feel. You can't control the trauma you feel. You can't control the, or I should say, the reaction to the trauma you feel. You can't control anything. But what you can control is like when you go to McDonald's, they're going to be there. Like when you will go to a, like a Bennigan's, they're going to be there. And when you go there, you put the taste blanket on, which is whatever food you're eating. And for that like one moment, you feel like there's something there to make you feel better. And I think a lot of people, myself included, use food like that because food just won't say no. Food may, in order for you to be healthy, you have to say no, but food never will. And there are very few people in your life that are that way, that just will not say no to you, no matter what you're doing. So it can be, it can be a blanket that you that you drape over yourself all the time. Yeah, you have this very powerful essay called "There's a Shotgun Under My Bed," in which you talk about mental health in the Black community. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that was kind of about. Um, well, that is about me contemplating suicide during the pandemic. Hmm. And the funny thing about it, if there is a funny thing, was that the moment I had the ideation, I realized it. A lot of times in our community, what we don't have is the opportunity to prioritize our mental health. So for me, that happens, right? And right away, I call Mm -hmm. a therapist, my therapist, and I say, what does this mean? And she goes, okay, this is what this means. I need you to get up and I need you to take all of the ammunition that you have for the gun and I need you to give it to somebody to hold for you. I need it out of the house. So I think about how that connects me to the community where I come from. Number one, if I'm still back in Baton Rouge and I'm growing up in South Baton Rouge where I'm from, the first thing is I don't have a therapist. That's the first thing. Like nobody had a therapist that I knew when I was growing up. So there's no one for me to call and get the advice of how to protect myself and how to protect my brain. Number two, I don't think growing up that I had a friend that I could call and say, hey, I'm coming over to give you ammunition to my gun because I don't feel comfortable having it that doesn't judge me because of some of the stigmas around that. If I'm back at home, it's like, are you crazy, bro? You losing your mind? Tell me what's going on. And I don't have anybody that just goes, hey, you want to drop that over? You can drop it here. So I think in LA, what I've been able to do And that comes with proximity to people who can help you. That comes to being in a different type of society. I think sometimes being mentally healthy is as aspirational for a lot of people where I'm from as as it is being rich. And there was privilege involved in me being able to uh, identify just how, how unhealthy I had become. And in my ability to fix it, there were things I had access to that a lot of my community doesn't. So um, that's a very long-winded answer, but the reality is that uh, I, I learned that by going through some things, and I learned that by comparing the things I'm going through now to things I went through uh, when I was a lot younger. It's a very thoughtful answer. Thank you for sharing that. Very well said. Let, let's talk a bit about your career at TMZ. Mm-hmm. What was it like to be the black guy at TMZ? Probably what it sounds like, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it was uh, It was challenging, but... Like I said, it wasn't something I was, wasn't used to. It was challenging and it was eye-opening because um, it divorced me away from some ideas that I had about things, you know? I used to think that intent was the only thing that mattered. And now I know that that's not true. The only thing that matters is what happened. So a lot of times you would do something, right? 
And even if you didn't intend to hurt a community or to affect a community, it doesn't matter that you didn't intend to. It only matters that you did. And the reason why I'll say that is because intention should be used proactively. Right? I should intend not to hurt you. So if, I, so if there's something that I think might injure you, I should avoid it or put it delicately. If you don't enter with that intention, your intention doesn't matter. And I think what I would see at TMZ all the time was they put things up and they would be like, oh, well, we're not trying to offend anybody. Well, what did you think was going to happen? A lot of times our pain, our friction is used to make content because you can get a reaction out of black people. You can rile them up. That whole that same thing is used for commerce. That same thing. We feed into that sometimes. And I was right there. And I was in the middle of an organization that did that. And what I was attempting to do was throw a little water on it, was to diffuse some of this, was to make sure that I was never compromised there. But it was incredibly stressful. It was a it was a full time job being a black guy at TMZ. Um, and it was draining. That doesn't mean that my time there was bad. I adored my coworkers. And me and Harvey got on pretty good for the most part of it. But it was interesting being in the situation with people who you thought were decent people, who pretty much were decent people, that just didn't give a damn whether or not the feelings of your community were hurt. And you start to think, is everybody like that? Is that just the way things are? Because where we are, we're thinking about this stuff all the time, but everybody else is living their lives. And I'm like, huh, it's interesting. So it wasn't the most comfortable place, but I, I learned a lot about culture and I learned a lot about media. Well, that's something, yeah. You became kind of notorious for a segment on TMZ when you challenged and argued with Kanye West. Can you set that up for our listeners and share what you were feeling during that experience? Uh, yeah, Kanye West came into the office and he, when he came into the office, uh, he was on one. And he said, he was talking to Harvey and Charles, and he had brought Candace Owens with him. And some kind of way they got to talking about slavery. And he said, slavery, it's 400 years. It's 400 years, and it's all of y'all. That seems like a choice to me. Now, when he said that, I didn't, I didn't respond at all because it wasn't my conversation. But then, moments later, he turned around and he goes, does it feel like I'm thinking freely? Uh, and I said, no, it doesn't feel like you're thinking anything. And while you are making music and being an artist and living the life that you've earned by being a genius, the rest of us in society have to deal with these threats to our lives. We have to deal with the marginalization that has come from the 400 years of slavery that you said for our people was a choice. Every day we have to walk into that truth while you choose to say things that, to be honest with you, dog, are nonsensical. And frankly, I'm disappointed, I'm appalled, and brother, I am unbelievably hurt by the fact that you have morphed into something, to me, that's not real. If you don't mind my asking, what, how did Kanye respond after you said to him that he had turned into something you didn't recognize? Oh, he actually listened. He came over and gave me a hug. Mm. I mean, look, Kanye West mm. is not a bad soul. He's just one that's incredibly impressionable. He's one of those guys that like is getting new information all the time. Think about it. He's done nothing but create 
since the minute that he could, he had the freedom to do so. And there are a lot of other things. Yeah. I'm not trying to son him or anything like that. There's a lot of other things that he probably hasn't considered. But that doesn't mean that he gets a pass for that. There's a debt that we owe to 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 the people that have, that survived that situation for us to be here. And we just can't let that type of talk become mainstream. So it was important I said something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you were right to do so, definitely. Since we're in Wisconsin, we have to ask you, what does Brett Favre's 399-yard, four-touchdown performance against the Oakland Raiders in 2003 mean to you? I always thought about that as a human being defeating grief. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the game is so memorable. And Lisa Guerrero, welcome to Oakland, where the overriding story took place yesterday afternoon in Mississippi when Brett Favre's father, Herb, drove off the road and died, apparently of a massive heart attack. And then, cruel as it is, Brett Favre had to make a decision. Does he play tonight or doesn't he play tonight? He has chosen to play. I understand the bond between Southern boy and, and Southern man that was father and son. And who, what Art Irvin Favre meant to Brett Favre and who, and how hard it was for Brett Favre to, to get over that and kind of, you know, uh, battle those demons in front of everyone. So he comes out and he has this amazing game. It's one of the most memorable games in Monday Night History, not because the game meant anything, but because the opponent that he was facing that night wasn't the Oakland Raiders, who you and I might never face. I don't know if you played in the league, but you and I might. No, I never had a chance. <laughs> I got cut in training camp. There you go. <laughs> if you and I might never play against, but we both have been up against grief before, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, him going out and throwing for 399 yards, I think it was four touchdowns against Oakland that night was him beating grief. And so when my father passed away, I thought that that's what I had to do. And I remember as I'm driving over the Mississippi River Bridge to go to the funeral home to talk about him and to pick out the hat that he's going to be buried in and the, the suit and all that stuff, I'm thinking about Brett Favre. Hmm. I'm thinking about 399 yards, and I'm thinking if he can do it, then I can do it. I'm thinking that everybody needs me to step up. This was the, up to this point, the defining moment of my adulthood. How is Van going to respond in front of his family, in front of his uncles, in front of everyone uh, to the death of his father? Is he going to step up and take care of everything, pay for everything, be the man that his dad would have wanted him to be, or is he going to shrink from this? I just kept thinking, man, Brad, when he was dealing, he was dealing that day. Not only was he good, he was perfect. You don't know how you handle those things, but... But he's doing it because he's Brett Favre. Third down and 11, and he slings it perfectly into the arms of Donald Driver and takes that to the 19-yard line. And I kept thinking I had to be that. And then I got to the funeral home. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it, and I fumbled. There's this moment where everybody's sitting there, everybody's sitting in there, and my Uncle Craig walks in, and I just, my Uncle Craig and my dad look exactly the same. I mean, when I say uh, exactly the same, they have the same face, but they stand the same. They wear their hat the same. These are country South Louisiana men. They smell the same. And I looked over, hmm. and I called a timeout. I got to go. So I walked outside of the funeral home, and I just stood in the Louisiana afternoon just looking out over Maringouin. And 
I respect Brett Favre. I I respect what he did. I respect his ability to conquer grief and go in there. But I wonder now if I ever had the chance to talk to him if that was his way of grieving, if football was what he shared with his father. So it ended up becoming the thing that helped him cope the most. So, but for me, I just couldn't defeat grief. I had to deal with it, and I still have it. Mm-hmm. It's hard, yeah. Exactly. You write in your book that, quote, peace is the answer to every question I've ever asked in my life, unquote. So so what things are on the horizon for you that will offer that peace? Oh, nothing. Nothing, man. You can't quantify, like, you can't define what's going to bring you peace. It's like, a, uh, it's homeostasis, yeah. right? Like, when I look at my life, I don't do anything to try to achieve peace. I try to be accepting of things that bring me peace. Because, like, we won an Academy Award now. Yeah. Uh, for, for, yeah, for our short film that we made, right? We won For a, your short film, yeah, yes. We won an Academy Award. Okay, now what's the next one? What if we don't ever get another one? What if we never make it back? Are you going to be okay? I bet you will be. So uh, peace is just an understanding that um, you're mentally, physically, and emotionally where you're supposed to be. And, man, you have to surrender a little bit to get there. Van Lathan is the Academy Award-winning producer of Two Distant Strangers, now streaming. He's also the host of several Ringer podcasts and is the author of Fat, Crazy, and Tired. Find out more about Van at wpr.org slash beta. It was a coincidence that they had a synth. He didn't like synths, but it was the cheapest way of getting a kind of the sound that he wanted to get without hiring in lots of other musicians. Coming up, Ben Wardle joins us to talk about his biography of Mark Hollis, the man behind the beloved British New Wave band, Talk Talk. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. The British band Talk Talk formed in 1981. They started out as a synth-pop band, but evolved into an organic experimental group that blended elements of jazz, classical, and ambient music to create their own unique sound. The band's mysterious mastermind, Mark Hollis, was constantly striving to take creative risks with Talk Talk sound. Their hits included It's My Life and Life's What You Make It. Mark Hollis died in February 2019 from cancer. He was 64. Ben Wardle has written the first finished biography about Mark. It's called Mark Hollis, A Perfect Silence. As one critic has said, Ben's book will make you listen. Beta's resident musicologist, Steve Gotcher, sat down to talk with Ben. Ben, one of the most intriguing things I read about Mark Hollis came from a quote by him in your book, A Perfect Silence. He said, the most important thing for me about any record is the silence above everything. I would rather hear one note than I would two, and I would rather hear nothing rather than I would one note. Can you expand on that idea, and how did it affect Mark's approach to music? It was important because I think he recognized the importance of, of space on a record and that was I think informed by his wide-ranging 
listening that he was doing. You know, he wasn't just obviously into one genre, certainly wasn't into just rock and pop. That was something that he kind of got out of his system before he was 25, almost. So, yeah, his love of jazz and, and atonal classical music was informing a lot of the, uh, the, the latter period of Talk Talk uh, and certainly his solo album. Right, and yet early Talk Talk is not really very spacious, but as the career of the band and then Mark's solo album comes along, you can hear less as time goes by. Yeah. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, you can compare them to a lot of... This is so easy to do, isn't it, to sort of make broad, sweeping comparisons, but you can compare them to a lot of artists, you know. is it, He kind of got, as he, as he got better at his art, as he kind of knew more and more about what he wanted to achieve, he simplified and, and edited and, and, and honed uh, in the same way that, you know, you look at some of the great sort of pictorial artists, the way their early work is detailed and, and, and sometimes a little bit muddy and kind of clears towards the, uh, a, a, as they get older and more mature. But, I mean, he took the silence and love of it to real logical conclusion, really, in the sense that he ultimately did end up going silent and never, never produced another bit of commercial music until he died, really. Now, Mark's older brother, Ed, who died in 1989, mm. had a major influence on the development of Mark's musical knowledge. How did he do that? Well, he just... He was a, myst- he was a man of mystery in the sense that no one seemed to be able to tell me where he got his money from, but he certainly managed to get enough money to have a record collection that, that had him locally known as 1000 Eddie. This was in the early 1970s in South End, you know, so they lived in a satellite town outside London in Essex, and yet he was the most switched on and connected person in terms of all the new music that was coming out. He seemed to, you know, any money he had, he would spend on records. And buying the stuff wasn't very easy because a lot of it wasn't available. You had to order it on import. You know, so a lot of the American records that he played, people like the Stooges and and the MC5, you know, no one in his uh, peer group had heard because they, one, they didn't know it was accessible because it wasn't really being written about, and two, he was the only one who'd had the, the uh, foresight to order it from a shop in the centre of London. So, you know, imagine what it was like for Mark, who at that point was not not yet 16 and hearing all this stuff, being exposed to that stuff at an early age. He it was almost like having a personal kind of Spotify in the early 1970s. And that, uh, as one of my interviewees said, you know, if if he was a reasonable songwriter to begin with, the fact that he had all that influence at such an early stage really would have helped him along. Mark wanted Talk Talk to be a guitarless band and the lineup to be closer to a jazz quartet. Why was that? <laughs> yeah, he said that a lot. I don't think that was a lie. I don't think that he was just sort of saying that. I think that's really genuinely what he would have liked. And I suspect that's based around the fact that he saw his voice as another instrument. So in his head, it was like the John Coltrane Love Supreme lineup with a keyboard, a bass, drums, and a lead instrumentalist, i.e. him, his voice. You know, basically he wanted to be successful, like everyone who, who forms a band and writes songs and, you know, plays live. He, he wanted fans. And if you look around, you know, the, the landscape at that time, there were a lot of bands without guitars. It was, it, or a lot of bands that had a synth-led sound. And that's exactly what Talk Talk had. And I don't think it's a just a coincidence, you know. I think the story that Mark 
told and played out in interviews was that it was a coincidence that they had a synth. He didn't like synths, but it was the cheapest way of getting a kind of the sound that he wanted to get without hiring in lots of other musicians. You listen to that first album and, and even the second album, the vastly superior second album, It's My Life. You know, they're synth records, really. Mark possibly wound people up, which he enjoyed doing, it must be said, um, journal winding journalists up by kind of constantly going on about his, you know, the jazz influences because no one could hear them. You, you can definitely hear them as, the, as time goes on uh, and they have a little bit more money and that's the story again that Mark told him, the more money they had, the more real instruments they could get in. Now, from 1981 to 1991, Talk Talk produced five studio mm -hmm. albums. But with their third album, The Color of Spring, from 1986, the music changed from a more pure pop sound to a more art pop mm -hmm. sound. What, uh, what caused that change? Well, the change was caused by the fact that they had a little bit more money, so they could hire in more session musicians, uh, some of whom had already played on it's My Life, but they'd had a, a huge success with It's My Life in Europe. So that's fundamentally, there's some money, they've recouped at EMI, and there's a confidence there with Mark and Tim Fries-Green, the co-writer and producer of Talk Talk. So they, can, they feel like they've got it, you know, they've got something that's going to work. Ironically, Dave Ambrose didn't think there was a hit on the record, and they went away and consciously wrote something to be a hit, which is, I love the fact that they went away, you know, confidently and, and did that and wrote Life's What You Make It, which various people who I interviewed told me that they had consciously said, right, well, Kate Bush has just had a big hit with a song that, that is just like a looped um, drum riff and one chord. We could do that. Uh, and then other people have said that they, it was just inspired by Can. But nonetheless, they produced that, which is probably arguably in Britain anyway, their most well-known track. They were still producing pop, but it was much more, much less synth-led and much more three-dimensional. Lots of beautiful kind of vistas of sound opening up. And certainly the B-side is getting late in the evening of the of the first single of the album. It's kind of points the way where Hollis would go after that album. So in 1988, the band sound was reinvented again with the album Spirit of Eden. Why was there such a change and how was it received? Well, they're finally successful in their home country as well as Europe and, and that confidence played out in making Spirit of Eden. The difference really was that, um, you know, Mark became a father, uh, the band were maturing and also, crucially, they'd finished a long tour promoting Colour of Spring 
and he said, that's it, I'm no, no longer touring. No, it's kind of, you know, that line in the sand. So I think he was a happier person knowing that he didn't have to go out and promote this thing. Of course, when they did deliver it, everyone, aside from he and Tim Freeze Green, were, were slightly concerned about how to market it. The industry at large were quite anticipating another colour of spring, and uh, including EMI. And so there was a quite complex and fractious relationship started developing between EMI and the band. And they, um, for many months, sat on the record not really knowing what to do with it, which resulted in there being a court case. So they managed to get out of EMI whilst simultaneously re releasing that record. Ironically, it got the best reviews of any of the records they'd ever released and the poorest sales. The band's final album, Laughing Stock, came out in 1991 mm. and continued to explore a more spacious sound. How was that accepted at the time when it came out? Well, I mean, I speak for myself when I, I was a big fan at the time because I, I got into them around the time of Spirit of Eden and I was really looking forward to Laughing Stock and I just didn't get it. I wasn't musically sophisticated enough, I think, to understand it. That's, that's the way I look back on it now because I really, really like it now. Still don't like it as much as a spirit of Eden, but um, it's an undeniably great record. But at the time, many people thought they were taking the piss, you know, and largely that was, you know, based on the fact that it was noisy, much noisier than Spirit of Eden, loads more guitars, which Tim Freeze Green was behind. He was always kind of like the more rockier of the two, you know, in the meantime, he'd been producing bands like the Catherine Wheel and Lush uh, and getting into the sort of so-called shoegazing scene that was going on in the UK at that time. And there was way more kind of out there kind of sonics going on. And it was just not well accepted. A lot of people in the industry thought that the name of the album was a direct reference to Polydor, who'd just signed them for two million pounds. And uh, they didn't know what to do with it. They tried, you know, again, you know, we, we think, oh, rubbish record label, they, they didn't do anything. But, you know, they made a real effort at releasing three singles, none of which were ever going to get any airplay, and they knew that at the time, but they released them in a kind of creative, sort of uh, collect the set type artwork covered box. Interestingly enough, that same same week that the record came out, I think the week afterwards, Nevermind came out. So that puts it in perspective as to what was kind of, you know, the context in which Laughingstock was emerging. Right now, Mark's solo record explores an even more spacious and minimal sound. Do you think he finally found the sound that he was looking for? I don't think there was ever a definitive sound he was looking for throughout his career. You know, he found the sound he was looking for was there on each of the, uh, certainly on each of the last two Talk Talk records, if not also The Colour of Spring. I think it's a lot more minimal. There's no drums, it's all acoustic, it was recorded um, all analogue. So there's a journey there 
with his pursuit of getting away from anything that could possibly date a record or enable people to pinpoint exactly when it was made. There's a quotation he says that, you know, the best thing that to go for in any record is to make a record that doesn't sound like it was made in the time in which it was made. And that certainly, you know, he certainly did that with his final solo album. Come So how do you think Mark Hollis is going to be remembered in music history? Well, I'd like to think he's going to be remembered more for his music, more than for the all of the kind of stories that go along with him being this person who was battling against the record industry. Um, that was the main, I think, uh, in, in some respects, the main thing I wanted to dispel was this man who was just, you know, he represented everything that mythologizing uh, journalists like to believe that artists can be, you know, bat battling against the horrible forces of commerce. He was just making, he was just making some great music and he wanted as many people as possible to like it and he was obviously wanting to make a living but he wanted to do it on his own terms and he did, you know, and I think anyone who can constantly fly in the face of public opinion and do the thing that uh, he's constantly being advised against doing and then end up still being listened to 30 years later is a genius. Ben Wardle, thank you so much for talking with us today about your book, Mark Hollis, A Perfect Silence. It's a great book. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Ben Wardle is the author of Mark Hollis, A Perfect Silence. He talked with Steve Gotcher. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Julie Nolke, Van Lathan, and Ben Wardle. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Our technical director and producer is Steve Gotcher. I don't judge a man by the length of his hair or the kind of music he listens to. Rock was never my bag. Tyler Ditter is our engineer. Well, that may not mean anything to you, but that means a lot to me. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. I've seen your type before. Flashy, making the scene. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you, that you're above the law? 